Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Carl Carlson. And this is Fred Schenkler. Hey, Carl. Hey, Fred. I got an uh, interesting uh, reader question that I'd like to share with you and kind of chew around a little bit back and forth. It's, it's sort of a broad uh, topic. It has to do with FME detection. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I saw that question come across and I'm like, hmm, I think you're going to dive into that. That's I, I knew it was going to be a topic here. <laughs> <laughs> There's almost nothing more controversial in the FMEA world than the subject of detection. Just let me let me talk about that for a minute, because I've been on standards committees going back to the 1990s on oh, I'm FMEA. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a lifelong pursuit or burden, um, and some companies would only want to use severity and occurrence in an FMEA. And just nothing to do with detection. And other companies said, no, you gotta have you gotta look at all three types of risk. The how severe the problem is or the consequence, what the likelihood of the problem is, as well as how likely we are to detect the problem. And so a lot of companies want to move away from the detection. And that was the question that this uh, reader brought up, because the reader said he was in favor of all three, but then recently decided to do away with detection because it was too confusing. And uh, what do I think about that? And that was the question. So I could have, okay. this could have been like a book in well, terms of uh, what I think about it. Yeah. But I'll, I'll summarize it just very briefly. Well, I get the confusion part is every time I've ever facilitated an FMEA, it was just the nature of detection and the scoring was intuitively reversed from the other two. Yes. Right. Oh. And, and that through these poor engineer types, you know, for a loop, it's like, so if it's, if it's very severe, it gets a high score. If it's very detectable, it gets a low score. Well, wait a minute. And they were trying to do mental flips on that. And, and that's just one issue. There's others. <laughs> yes, there are others. The, the, the short answer that I gave the gentleman is that if you're not assessing the likelihood of detection, then you're going to miss out on a potential risk. And I described it to him as follows. If you have a problem that exists in your design and you, your tests do not detect it during product development, your tests or analyses, that problem very well may get into the field. So the, there is a risk to the inability to detect. And as you point out, Fred, it's the inverse. Yeah. So it gets a little bit confusing to people. Yeah. Now, one of the things, and that's one of the, I, to me, one of the great uses of a design FMEA is to say, you know, the design team says, well, we've got this new material. We're not exactly sure how it's going to behave. We think it'll be okay. And then if we don't talk about detection of that potential failure mechanism, or, or, or failure mode, then we don't put the sensors in place. We don't add it to the checklist of things to look for. We don't know that that's part of the test suite that we should actively look for. We don't become primed to look for that issue unless we get really, really lucky. And I think that's what you, the usefulness of the detection thought process is as well. 
we might not know how to detect it today during the FMEA, which means that it gets a high score. So then we got to circle back and go, oh, we need to add this pressure transducer here so that we can actually determine if that's yielding or not during loads. And if we don't think that through, then we wouldn't put that sensor there and we wouldn't know. Yeah, exactly. It, it, there's a design solution that, that that is very helpful. This also guides the quality of tests. If you have a serious or high-risk problem, in FMEA language, it would be a failure mode and associated cause, and your tests don't detect it. So you run your tests, but they don't discover whether that problem exists or not. There's a pr- And you don't have any other tests to do, then that is a problem. Yeah. That's a detection problem. You're going to, that, that, that issue is going to carry forward into the field. Well, there's, there's other issues here though. It's, I, I run into folks that go, well, we have, we only run high temperature tests because that's the chamber we have. And he says, well, we just talked about this mechanism here that's cyclic loading, c- cyclic temperature loading. We do thermal cycling in order to even excite that realm of failure mechanism to find out how bad it really is. And they're like, well, we don't have that kind of chamber, so we're not going to do that. And it's deliberate ignoring the ability to check something. That's infuriating to me. It it's it borders on malpractice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when there's, you know there's a mechanism that that is going to be a problem and you just ignore it. Yeah. And if we don't see it in the test, then it's fine. It says, well, yeah, okay. You, just my favorite, uh, I could go off of bad testing. That might be a whole topic for Halloween, I think, is we how how to do testing bad well, or not well, I should say. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> yes, yes. So let me just, for listeners, let me just outline what detection, in an FMEA, what detection should be. It, it's a, it, because it has been a confusing topic. So just very, very simply, detection in an FMEA is the likelihood that your current design controls, which are like tests or analyses, will discover a particular failure mode and associated cause during product development. So it's a fairly, once you get, once you grasp that concept, then you can see that detections related to, it gets down to the cause level, so you can actually see which causes are most important. It also, does a quality check on your tests. So if you currently plan these tests and they don't do a very good job of detecting the problem, then it'll highlight that with a high detection risk. And it also focuses on during product development because you don't want the problem to leak over into the field. This then brings up part of the confusion is what about detection in service? Yeah. I'm thinking of the uh, you know oil light on your car saying, yeah. hey, it gives you space to add oil to your engine, to your crankcase, basically, before it runs dry. It, or the gas gauge, it gives you a warning, a little, in my car anyway, a little yellow light comes on and it comes on and says, hey, you need to get some more fuel. Um, it gives you an, a space between when it can say, hey, you're going to run out of gas here in 50 miles, you better do something about it, versus if that wasn't there, if there was no gauge, also, the only way I would detect not having fuel is the car would stop. Which, that's the way I traditionally think of detection, is it's built into the, into the can we determine it 
in time so we can do something about it to avert the problem. So you've, you've given a great example. And I'm going to state that both are important from my point of view. My, mm-hmm. my experience, both are important. You have to understand detection in operation, like the all light and sensors, you know, buzzers and notices pop up and things like that. Uh, and some of them are automatic, like there's a whole subject of monitoring and system response mm-hmm. where you can bake in that you're automatically making adjustments based on a progression of failure in service. And then you make adjustments so it doesn't become catastrophic. And that is a whole body of knowledge that is so important. And that's detection in service. There's a separate subject, and unfortunately, it uses the same word of detection during product development so that you can fix the problem before it gets into the field. And both of those are important. And that's why it gets confusing because they both use the same word. Yeah. Now, I had one team that had detection in-house and detection in service, and they separated mm-hmm. the columns. And yep. and it helped clarify which one we were talking about at, one, at some point. And some things they knew, we had a good gas gauge, for example. And so is we considered it with that proven technology already in the system and in the design. So they skipped the in-house one because this is already a solved problem. It's issue, it's customers like it. It's fine. It works. It doesn't cause problems. You know, and then somebody would say, well, is there a way we can design that problem out? And they sat around the table for a second and went, nope. And we're not interested in doing that. So we skipped the first, the in-house detection because mm-hmm. we don't, we don't need to. It wasn't a priority. It wasn't of interest. It wasn't going to benefit the customer in any significant way and so on. And then there were plenty others that there really wasn't any detection scheme in service. There, We just didn't have, it would be a whole new feature added to this product and probably unnecessary if we could design it out. And so that's the one where it almost always became a conversation of, we're not sure how big of a problem this is, how much of an issue it is. We think it's it could be a problem. We just don't know. And that triggered the in-house part that then, well, let's go find out. That gave us that space to go determine that the answer to that question. So you can fix it or design modify it out the design or, yeah. before it gets launched. Right. And that, so really good uh, description of the both types of detection, the in-service, in-house, and the, the reader, I'm sorry, the the reader that wrote me this question is saying, okay, this got so confusing, we just dropped the subject of detection. And then he used what's called criticality, which is S times O. Severity times occurrence. Severity times occurrence. And I said, okay, that's got the same flaw as RPN. And we had, I went into this discussion about RPN. I've written mm-hmm. about this and I gave him the links. RPN has a flaw. RPN is made up of S times O times D. And the biggest flaw of RPN is you can have a high severity, low RPN that doesn't meet your company threshold, but it's very high risk. And so you've got this baked-in flaw of RPN. This is the subject of another podcast. Yeah. Um, and the same baked-in flaw of S times O, because you could have high severity, low occurrence can still be high risk. Yeah. So I just had to introduce that to this reader so he didn't think that just adopting S times O is suddenly the panacea. 
And different podcast subject, but I'll allude to it here. I use what's called action priority, which is the different combinations of SOD to meet a high, medium, low risk, red, yellow, green, that type of thing. But that's a subject of another day. That's a subject of another book. (laughs) (laughs) But I keep trying to simplify. Yeah. And we've had this conversation. FMEA can get way too complex. You want to simplify, simplify, simplify. And that means prioritize what you work on. Make sure you have clear definitions of severity, occurrence, detection, and then only work on the highest risk areas and try to simplify the procedure. But that's that's a long path. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes detection, especially in the design realm, it's, to me, it's akin, if you're dropping it in that realm, it's like akin to putting your head in the sand. You're, you're, yeah. you're avoiding the prioritization of what do we need to know. And even though it's, it's, I don't know, it's difficult in the process of going through the, well, how, are we going to understand if this is an issue or not? Or how, how could we tell if this is an issue? Or how do we tell if it occurs in our prototypes or in our design in some form or matter? And I've seen the extremes of, well, we got to test everything and, and run tons of experiments. And they're doing design of experiments one after another, trying to get all these detection things scored out correctly. And they're like, oh, that's, that's not, not the right path. No. And then the opposite side is, well, we'll get it in the design review. We'll get it in the design review. Or the customer will let us know. Well, yeah, yeah, that's another one. It's even worse. And they say, well, it's really detectable because we do we do design reviews. We'll catch it there. And I'm looking at them going, all right, mm. the reason you brought me in is because your last product sucked. <laughs> you know? So listen up. So and did you do a design review last time? And, and they go, yeah. And they say, why didn't you catch all those issues that, you know, here's the Pareto of 15 things that you got wrong on the last design. Oh, you know, well, the pizza wasn't as good and we didn't have enough time. And I don't think design review is, it, it's a panacea in most places where they, they think they're, you know, they congratulate each other and maybe yeah, talk so about. In a lot of places, it's, it's like a, a gate review. In other words, uh, are we okay to move on to the next gate? But yeah. it doesn't get into the technical issues. Some design reviews do. and that... Those are the good ones where they actually yes. have a, you know, um, and that's a whole, I think we've talked about those before, is how to make it useful f- for the design team um, and not threatening to them. Um, and it can be extremely valuable. But the idea is, is that the detection has a, a narrow window, in my opinion, of where it's really useful. And if you wave your hand and go, oh, we'll catch that, well, uh, that's no issue. We'll throw it in the chamber, it'll be fine. And it not does have re- a narrow window, yes. And, and I don't think that adds to the, on once you get past, it's a reverse scale. <laughs> once you get past, it's in-house versus in-service. Then it's still, it takes some skill to facilitate a team to actually use it well. And that's the hard part. In my teaching career, I state that whoever's leading the team, the FMEA team, needs to understand the principles very well. Yep. Because the team will find the, well, they'll go off into the ditch easily if the leader doesn't understand FMEA fundamentals very well. <laughs> well, my very first FMEA, I wasn't even the 
facilitator of it, but it was, it was the first one I was in, and I was, I was a manufacturing engineer at the time. And they got started and go, and it was the first thing was, well, you know, what, well, what could fail? It was kind of that kind of start of the question. What are the failure modes that we've got to worry about? And somebody brought up, well, it could turn blue if it's too cold. And then three engineers jumped up to the board and started doing equations and looking at design <laughs> options and stuff. We can solve that. <laughs> and that was the, that was the rest of the meeting. These guys all talking oh about how God. they could solve the first thing they came up with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this poor woman who was facilitating me said, no, 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 it's a brainstorm. Lots of ideas. No, we can solve this one. Then we'll be done. <laughs> Needs a team leader. Yeah. Need, so just to share one story here. And I, I know you've heard this, Fred, but I'll just share it for listeners because where I got religion on detection is years back when I, and, and you mentioned it, Fred, I used to be, have a uh, job related to door testing. Mm -hmm. And we had a set of tests that I inherited that we ran all the time. Basically you wiggle this and you pull this and you push that and, and uh, you do the different things on doors and hinges and windows. And, and, uh, and then if you pass the test, the part goes in is okay to, to go into the field. And so I asked the question, I said, how's our door warranty? Oh, nobody oh, ever God, asked Nobody that. really knew that. So, because that was a different silo. So we went off and we got the door warranty and it was bad. And yet we're passing a hundred percent of tests. Hmm. So that the light bulb turned on for me, Fred, if you're passing tests and your warranty's bad or your field problems are bad, or your customer feedback is bad. You got a problem with your tests. Or your analyses. Well, there's a bigger problem than that too. It's that people, yes. just, you know, write it back saying if it if this holds so many foot pounds, then it's good, and then that becomes a test requirement. Then that's where it's not that I don't blame the person running the tests, especially when they're handed a set of requirements or processes. It's but you're speaking to the point of well, this isn't doing what we think it's doing. It's not helping us improve the design. And that might not have been a point. I think there's way too many people that want to just test the pass and we'll set a, a bar that we know we can pass so we can ship the product. Right. That's a culture issue. That's not a reliability issue. Well, that's a good point. There's, there's a bigger, in other words, there's a bigger issue than uh, it's not going to be solved with the test um, person. At the test jig, because as soon as they go off the rails, or not off the rails, they go off the process of wiggle this and push that and pull that and make these force measurements. Well, you were outside the parameters of the test, so those don't count, even though yeah. it might be exactly what you're seeing in the field and you can detect it. I began a long path of, of improving the tests through the use of FMEA. Mm -hmm. So the FMEA would say, here's where the risk is. And then we'd say, well, here's the current tests. And I bring in the test engineer and say, how likely if you ran those tests, I bring in the design engineer too, and say, how likely if you run those tests, will we find these big problems that the FMEA discovered? And they would say, well, not very likely. Yeah, you know, you, you'll pass that test. Yeah. <laughs> it right, doesn't, it's not test, useful for you. It won't discover the problem. Yeah. Well, if you already knew what the problem was, why didn't you just go deal with it? Well, that's true. And so that's the uh, that's the other advantage of FMEA. You can you can say, okay, here's the problem, and we're going to make a design change to fix it. And just to be extra safe, we're going to make sure the test will discover it in case we've made an error. Well, I I like it in that realm is because I always treated detection as the last resort. 
for mm. action items, follow up and stuff. It's it's I use detection most often as the follow up activity for a high priority thing that we needed to go deal with when there was uncertainty. Does this exist or not? Well, we think we made a design change that should cover it. There's a real call out, you know, shout out then for detection. Is we think we fixed it, we don't we don't know. All right. You well, let's be go find sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's go find out. Or right. You know, or we made these changes, that shouldn't be an issue anymore. How certain are you? Are you going to bet the farm on that? And that's detection then. And that's well, where you're, I've and you're Basically what you're doing, Fred, and I, I'm going to agree with this, is you're basically saying occurrence, the likelihood of occurrence, and the severity, which is the, the how bad the effect is, are more important than the detectability. You want to get those things right, and that's why action priority, which takes every combination of SOD mm-hmm. and then determines what the risk is. I don't want to make detection e- automatically equal risk with occurrence and severity. Yep, yeah. And that adds some of the confusion to it. Sometimes you weight detection more or less, and, and when you it overall, it gets a bad rap. And yeah, I... I found it was just in one organization that they split it into two and that I thought that was really novel and, and helped the conversation a whole lot. We still stumbled over the reverse scales and all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, You're going to need to deal with both one way or the other. Yeah. There is in-house detection and that's a risk. And there's clearly detectability or detection in service has its own risk. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, so do you, uh, um, email dialogue get to a resolution or are they? Uh... No, I don't know because this is a new, as you saw, it was fairly recent within the last week. Yeah. And I've answered it and I haven't heard back yet, but uh, I hope it's resolved. I'm sure it'll, it will be. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. If you're a listener and you have confusions or questions or opinions about detection, uh, let us know. We'd love to uh, talk about it some more. Yeah, and we're at, uh, you can get in touch with us at ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. A couple of ways to get in touch with us there. Uh, LinkedIn works for all of the hosts of the show, as well as we have a bunch of contact information on our about pages at the site. And there's, so there's lots of ways to get in touch with us. We try not to be uh, hard to find. And we do genuinely try to get an answer back to you right away when we get one. And then a lot of these then turn into a longer discussion. And I know from my experience, Carl, is that I bring a question that I've answered and then we talk about it. I have to update my answer. <laughs> instead, exactly. Instead you get out. new insights. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you get the power of the, the team here at, at Speaking of Reliability with your questions. Eh, all you have to do is ask. All right. That wraps it up. All right. Thanks, Carl. Talk to you later. <laughs> Talk to you later, Fred. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation. If you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes, or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.